Turn with me in your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, This morning uh, we will finally, you may be saying, uh, be moving beyond uh, verses 4 through 7 uh, to look at uh, the final verses of this great chapter. For the last uh, several weeks we have been looking at Paul's uh, description of his portrait of Christian love in verses 4 uh, through 7. And now, uh, this morning, we are going to consider, in some ways, his, his last word on, on Christian love here in chapter 13. So let us read together. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. If you are uh, using one of the uh, Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 960. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, as we turn our attention to these words, we pray that your Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired Paul as he wrote, would now be with us, would lead me as I preach, would be with us as we hear, uh, that you would give us ears, that you would give us eyes, that we would receive your truth, and that we would be changed by it. Father, do your work here this morning, Father, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of the glory of your Son, that we might attain to the full measure of the stature of Christ, and that we might be fully equipped for every good work which you have prepared in advance for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul states his thesis right up front in the first words of chapter 8, and I've taken those words as my title this morning because they really do capture the point that Paul is trying to make. In this final paragraph, or in these final paragraphs as it's divided up in the ESV, Paul shows us that love never ends. So what does that mean? What does it mean to say that love never ends? In. Some take this as the last statement of Paul's portrait, the, the portrait that he has been giving us in the, the previous paragraph. They, they read it as a conclusion to verses 4 through 7. And if you take it that way, if you read this statement as, as part of the portrait that Paul has been giving us, then you're most likely going to read it as a restatement or as a, um, a, um, a parallel to what he has just told us uh, in the previous statement, namely that love endures all things. Because to say that love never ends, if you read it as part of the portrait, is to say that, that love never reaches a termination point. You, you never reach the point where your obligation to love has been exhausted. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 13. He says, the only debt for a Christian that is to remain outstanding, the only debt that can never be paid off in full is the debt to love. Love never ends in this sense. And certainly that is what Paul means 
when he says that love endures all things. As we saw two Sundays ago, when when Paul says that, he means uh, that love will endure to the end whatever the costs of loving another well happen to be. Whatever it costs you to love your wife, whatever it costs you to love your children, whatever it costs you to love your, your neighbor, you will bear those costs, not only for a time, but you will bear them for as long as it takes. Love endures. But when Paul says that love never ends, I don't think he is simply restating what he has already said. I don't think that these words are actually part of the portrait that Paul has been giving us. He is not giving us here another characteristic of love, but he's actually making a comment about love. He's making a comment about this love that he has been describing in the previous paragraph. And he wants us to see that love is permanent So that we will understand that love is preeminent. Paul is forcing us here to see that love is the goal. Love is is what we are building towards. In some sense, everything else is scaffolding. Everything else is is building towards this end. In my, my prayer, I ask that God would use his word to build us up towards what? He would build us up towards the full measure of the stature of Christ. That's the goal that Paul sets before us in Ephesians chapter two, he said, or Ephesians chapter four. He says, "This is the goal that God has for His church: that we would be built up towards maturity, that we would be built up towards the full measure of the the stature of of Christ." In Corinthians, he talks about the fact that we are being transformed through a vision of Christ from one degree of glory to another, from glory to to glory. That we are being ever more conformed to the image of the glory of Christ as we behold him as he is. John tells us something similar. He says that when we see him, we will be like him. And so there is this goal, this this goal of transformation, this goal of of maturity, this goal of becoming Christ-like that is set before us. And the portrait of that Christ-like character is the portrait of Christian love that Paul has been giving us here in these last verses. And what he wants us to see, he wants us to see that that is the goal. That is what everything else is serving for. You see, there was a a tendency or a a temptation in the Corinthian church to, to put a priority on gifts. Because gifts are impressive. Gifts are, are impressive manifestations of the, of the Spirit. And Paul doesn't in any way want to denigrate gifts. We're going we're gonna to see that, that Paul values the gifts. He, he values the importance of the gifts in the church. The Spirit must be at work. But we must not forget that the Spirit is working towards something. The, word, the Spirit has a, a goal in mind. And that goal is Christian love. And so when the scaffolding is removed, that which remains is love. That which remains is this this Christian character that he has been describing. The other things are meant to get us there. And so therefore, when we're thinking about the priority, we are thinking about love as that which is preeminent, as that which we are working towards. The other things are valuable in that they serve this end. And this is what Paul wants us to see here at the, at the end of his, his portrait of Christian love. He says, this thing that I've been describing, this character that I've been describing, it's not just, it's not just the, the best of the Spirit's works. It is the preeminent work. It is that which all the other works serve. It is, it is the end to which the Spirit is taking us. 
And because it is the end, because it is the building, because it is the structure that is the, the goal of this whole process, love is what's permanent. Love is what, is what will carry on into the next age. The other things, they will pass away because they are for the age of incompleteness. They are for the age of what is still partial. So this is the point that, that Paul wants us to, to see in this work. And, in, and when you begin to see this, you begin to understand why we have been saying all along that, that these texts are very appropriate texts for the Advent season. These are very appropriate texts for us to study as we remember and, and celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is the goal of His coming. Paul tells us in in Titus that he came to redeem for himself a people who are zealous for good works. But how are good works defined? How do we know what is good? Well, good is defined by the law of God, by his word, by his revelation. He came that we might be rescued from a life of sin and rebellion and set free to walk in obedience to our, our king, in obedience to his word. And Scripture tells us that the fulfillment of God's Word, obedience to His law, is love. In love is all of the law fulfilled. And so these are all just different ways of talking about the fact that that God is rescuing us to something. He's not just rescuing us from the guilt of our sin, but He is rescuing us from our sin that we might be restored to what we were created to be. That we might again become the image bearers of God that, that, that He created us to be. That we might glorify and enjoy Him for all eternity by walking in the footsteps of love. By being conformed to this portrait that Paul has set before us. This is the goal of Christ's coming for you. This is what His salvation is all about. That we might become people who love like this. And it's important that we see that that is the goal. It's important that we see that that's what's permanent so that we don't get distracted and so that we don't, we don't set an undue um, value on that which God intends only to be temporary, on which that which God intends to, to get us there. Notice what Paul says next. He tells us that, that love never ends. Love is that which is permanent. Love is the goal towards which we are working. And, and he contrasts this, notice, with the impermanence or the the temporary nature of prophecies and of tongues and of knowledge. He says these things, prophecies, tongues, knowledge, these things are going to pass away. These things are going to cease. Now, some people try to make a a big deal about the difference in in wording here, that that Paul uses two different words. He says one set of gifts are going to pass away, the other set of gifts are going to to cease. I'm not sure the, the stylistic difference there can bear much weight. Paul isn't trying to make a distinction between the gifts here. He's trying to make a distinction between all of the gifts and love. And, and when he says that one is going to cease, that's the same as saying that one is going to, to pass away. So I don't think we should do too much with the difference here. But it, he's just simply saying, listen, the gifts as a whole are temporary. They are going to pass away. They are for this age. But why? Why are they temporary? Why, why will they not last? Why do they end when love does not? Well, the answer is uh, in their purpose. Notice what Paul says. He says, the answer seems to be that the gifts are necessary because in this present age, things are still incomplete. Things are still 
partial. Now we know in part. It's, it's what I said about the scaffolding. When the building is incomplete, you still need the scaffolding. When, when the building is still under construction, you, you need those helps. But once the building is complete, they will no longer be necessary. And so these gifts, they are the, the scaffolding that God is using, that the Holy Spirit is using to build us up towards maturity in Christ. And we can see that, I think, when we think about the specific nature of the gifts that Paul mentions. The first gift he mentions is, is prophecy. He says there are, there are prophecies. There are those who, who speak the words of God. Now when we think of the word prophecy today, I think for, for many people today, we think of foretelling. We think of those who predict the future. Those who, who, who say what is going to happen. And of course, the prophets did this. Especially this time of year, we like to remember some of Isaiah's prophecies where he tells us that the virgin will be with child, where he tells us that the, you know, the stump of Jesse will, will bring forth a shoot, where he tells us that in the land of darkness there will be a light dawning. And we remember those prophecies and we, we remember the way that they, they foretold them some 700 years even before Christ was born. But telling the future was not a prophet's primary job. That's not what they were there about. They only did that when it served their purpose, which their primary purpose was not to foretell so much as to foretell, as to to speak the words of God to God's people, to to teach them the the word and the the will of God. And of course, that that was necessary. It was necessary for us to have the words of the prophets. It was necessary for for God to to speak to us that we might know Him and that we might know His will. But listen to what Jeremiah says about the age to come. This is what Jeremiah, one of those prophets, says. He says, in that day, speaking of the age to come, speaking of of the dawn of, of of, of the new heavens and the new earth, he says, in that day, no longer will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother. There's not going to be teaching going on. Well, is that because we're not concerned about about knowing things anymore? It's because we will no longer need to know the Word of God? Well, of course not. Notice what he says. He says, in that day, no longer will one teach his neighbor or, or teach his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And so in that day, in the new heavens, the new earth, there will not be more prophecies. There will will not be new revelations of the word of God because in that day, we will all know in full. Everyone will know the Lord. They, They won't need prophets to speak to them the word of the Lord because they will know it. We can say the same thing about, about knowledge. Remember, Paul is not here talking about knowledge per se. Jeremiah just told us that, that in the age to come, there will be knowledge. Everyone will, will know the Lord. It's not that knowledge is going to go away. Uh, quite the contrary. Knowledge is going to be ubiquitous. It's going to be, it's going to be everyone. Everyone is going to have it. But the gift of knowledge is going to pass away. Now, what is this gift of of knowledge. Well, if you've ever read you know, more than one book on the spiritual gifts, you know that the gifts are, are hard to define with, with great precision. It's hard for us to say exactly what uh, any particular gift happens to be. Paul never you know, gives us a, a definition. He just sort of lists them here and there, and we have to uh, guess a little bit about what these mean. But if I was going to guess, and that's what it is, but you know, I, I think with some um, you know, degree of, of, uh, of knowledge, we, we can guess what this gift of knowledge is, and it seems to be an understanding of those words that the prophet spoke. You know, there, there are some who are given the ability to, to understand the words that have been spoken so that they can explain them to God's people. 
Sometimes the prophets themselves didn't always understand what they were saying. Peter tells us this. He says sometimes the, the, the prophets themselves were scratching their head. They were wondering, what is it that I'm talking about? You know, what is this thing that we're talking about? And God gives others the ability to know, the ability to understand, and the ability, ability to, to explain what has been spoken, what has been revealed to the church but just in the same way that prophecies will not be necessary in the new heavens and the new earth, neither will this gift of knowledge. Why? Because people will know. We won't need people with a special gift of knowledge because we will already know the Lord. And of course, the final gift that Paul mentions, the, the final gift that will pass away, the one that will cease, is the gift of tongues. And again, the same thing applies here. It's hard to know exactly what this gift is about. There's debate in the church. If you, if you look at the book of Acts... It seems clear that the gift of tongues has to do with the the speaking of of known human languages that you don't know uh, by any other means. You you didn't go to school. When I was in school, I I studied Spanish because that's what everybody had to do, right? You have to have two years of a foreign language in high school. You have to have two years of a foreign language in uh, in college. And so I can say, no hablo espanol. That's what I can say uh, after four years of of Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. Please don't speak to me in that language. You know, I need English. Right? But nevertheless, we, we, we had to study it. But the gift of tongues is not being able to learn another language through study, but it's, it's the, the Spirit-given power to, to speak that language. That's what it appears to be in the book of Acts. It's, it's a little less clear in Paul's letter to the Corinthians exactly what he is, he is talking about, whether that's known human languages or, or whether there is something else. But, but however you sort of come down on that discussion about what is going on in the book of Corinthians, one thing seems to be clear. And that is this, that the gift of tongues is a spirit-empowered way of praising God in something other than your native tongue. I think we can agree on that. All right? The gift of tongues is the ability to, to praise God and to give thanks to Him and to recount the great things that He has done in a language other than your native tongue. That's the, the gift of tongues. Now, was it, the gift, was it the tongues of angels? Was it the, the tongues of another nation? We can, we can debate that later. But for now, just notice, it, it is this ability to praise God in ways that, that other people can understand, but maybe that, that even you don't fully know what you are saying. So what is the significance of such a gift? Why would the gift of tongues accompany the, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church in, uh, in the first century? Well, it seems clear that this gift is a, is a sign of the reversal of the curse of Babel. That's that's what the gift of tongues is about. At Babel, God divided man. He divided their language that they would would spread out, that that he would make room. (laughs) He was actually doing it in order to undermine their attempts at apostasy, their attempts at idolatry. It was a judgment upon them. And he he sent them out and he spread them out and he divided them into the table of nations that we have uh, in, in Genesis. And then he picked one nation, And through that one nation, he was going to bring about his plan of salvation. But he never meant for that salvation to be limited to that one nation. He he chose one nation. He worked through one nation so that through that nation, blessings might flow to who? To all the families of the earth. And so now when we get to the New Testament and God pours out His Spirit and there's this gift of tongues where, where people who don't normally speak to each other can suddenly understand one another... 
He says, this is a sign that that curse is being reversed, that I am again making one man. In his letter uh, to the Ephesians, Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility being torn down in Christ. So that in Christ there is no longer Jew or, or, or Gentile. There is no longer Scythian slave or, or free. But now he is reuniting. And, and however you understand the gift of tongues, it seems to represent this, this unity that is being brought about. And when we get to the new heavens, the new earth, that unity will be complete. <laughs> That unity will, will be achieved. Jesus' prayer in, in John 17 will come to fruition. We will be one as we were always intended to be one. And a gift that signifies or, or demonstrates or maybe even somehow brings about that unity will no longer be necessary because the unity will be complete. This is Paul's point. This is what Paul is, is, is driving. He says, listen, the gifts have a purpose. They, they serve the church. They are bringing you towards the goal. But they're not ends in themselves. They are means to an end. They are necessary in this day and age. They, they are necessary here and now because the church is still incomplete. Because this is an age of, of what is partial. But. He says, but listen, they won't last forever because when the perfect comes, that which is to get us there will be obsolete. It will no longer be necessary. It will cease. It will pass away. This is what we see in in verses 9 and 10. Look with me at what Paul says. Writes there. Notice he, he says four. That's, that's the, his sort of explanatory question. He says, I'm about to tell you why. I'm about to give you the reason for what I've just said. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The gifts will pass away because they are for the age of what is incomplete. They are for the age of what is partial. But when the perfect comes... Those gifts will pass away. But of course we have to ask the question, what, what does Paul mean by the perfect? What is he, what is he talking about here? What, is, what does he mean when he says, when the perfect comes? Well, there are, there are some uh, who, who want to suggest that, that Paul is here talking about you know, when, when the, the perfect New Testament comes or when the full canon comes. I, I don't think that that's what Paul has in mind. I think the language that Paul uses here is is fairly clear. I think Paul is clearly talking about when God, uh, through Christ, will bring to completion the good work that he has begun. That day of Christ when when faith will become sight. That that day when when we will be made perfect in the glorifying and enjoying of, of Christ for all eternity. That day when we will see him face to face. That day when Christ comes again to bring to completion that which he has begun. That's what Paul means when he talks about the coming of the perfect. He's talking about Christ's second advent. He's he's talking about that day that we all look forward to with eager anticipation as we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. That day when when he will truly bring perfection. He says, in that day, in that day when he brings to completion his work, in that new age, in in that that age uh, to come, Spiritual gifts will cease because they will no longer be 
necessary because there will no longer be the partial to complete. There will, there will no longer be the immature to build up. There will no longer be the, the need of, of this edification. And so those things which are designed to that end, they will pass away. Love in that day will be perfect. It will be established. We, we will be perfectly conformed to the image of the glory of the Son. And thus the gifts which were designed for our edification, the gifts which were designed for building up the church, they will no longer be necessary. And they will pass away. He illustrates this with, with, two, with two points there as he, as he goes on. First, he gives us the image of just childhood. He says, listen, we, we ought to understand this. We ought to understand how this works. There are, there are certain things that pertain to childhood. When you're a child, you think like a child. You reason like a child. Uh, you, you therefore speak like a child. And therefore, you need to be treated like a child, right? Uh, when you think like a child, when you reason like a child, uh, there are certain requirements that, that are, are necessary. Parents have to put certain restrictions. They have to give certain guidelines. They have certain rules. But as your children grow up, you, you give them more freedom. You, you, you remove some of the restraints. You, you begin to treat them like Adults, and it wouldn't be appropriate if you were, uh, if you were a parent of grown children, and you were still treating them like two-year-olds. We would sort of instinctively understand that's not okay. <laughs> you can't treat your grown children the same way you treat your five-year-old. You know, there, there's a there's a difference here because when they grow up, they put childish ways behind, and and you now regard them as an adult. It's the same thing. That Paul gives us in the second illustration. In the second illustration, he says, listen, he says, in this day, now, we see like a, like a reflection in a mirror. We, we, it's, it's a dim reflection. It's, a, it's not one of the, the glass mirrors we have today, but it's a piece of polished steel, a piece of polished bronze, a, a, a piece of polished metal where you see a reflection, but it's a, it's a dim reflection. It's not a perfectly clear reflection. He says, but then, in that day, we will see face to face. When I hear this analogy, it reminds me of uh, one of the things I had to read as a philosophy student at Covenant College so many years ago, with Plato's allegory of the cave. Maybe you've, you've read it at some point, you know, where, where you know, the people are, are trapped in this cave and they see these shadows on a wall and they have no idea that the shadows are, are, are merely reflections or, or are, are merely shadows of the real world that's going on behind them. And Plato's point was he said, listen, you know, you're not seeing Full reality. You're, 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 see, you're just getting a glimpse. You're, you're, it's, it's accurate, it's true, but it's, but it's not the full story. Paul's, Paul's image here of, of a mirror is a little bit more optimistic than, than Plato's shadows. We, we see more than just shadows. We, we see a reflection. Paul has a, has a greater sense of, of the reality of what we experience now, but he still recognizes that it's incomplete. He says, listen, now we see a reflection, but then we will see Face to face. We will see reality in its, its full glory. We will see reality as it truly is. Now is an, a, an age of incompleteness. It's an age of, of partialness. But then is an age where things will be made perfect. So Paul drives home the point again and again. It's what he says in the second half of verse 12. He says, now I know in part. That's the bottom line. He says, now, now I know in part. I, I don't know the full story. I, I don't fully comprehend it. I don't fully live it out. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. What does Paul mean when he says that? What does he, what does he mean when he says, then we will know fully? I don't think Paul is, is claiming that he's going to you know, attain something like a God-level uh, uh, omniscience. 
That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that that we will know everything there is to know in the same way that that God knows everything there is to know. That's never what was intended for us as, as creatures. Paul isn't saying that our creaturely limitations will be removed. That we will still be finite, even in heaven. I don't think we're going to know everything there is to know, but what he's saying is the incompleteness of sin will be utterly removed. The limitations we were never supposed to have, the the limitations that came upon us when we were subjected to futility because of, of Adam and Eve's rebellion, these things will be removed, and we will again be set free to be fully truly human. We will be set free to be the image bearers we were meant to be. In that day, we will know fully what it is to know God, what it is to love God, what it is to experience His his pleasure, what it is to do that which is pleasing to Him. Then I shall be fully known. This is what Paul says. And in that day, when we know fully and that day when, when the limitations of sin, when the, the darkening of mind that has come upon us, when the, the futility that, that we have been enslaved to, when all those things are removed, in that day we will love. We will love perfectly, as Paul has described love here in 1 Corinthians 13. In that day we will be people who are truly patient and kind. In that day, we will be people who are no longer subject to envy and to to boasting or to arrogance or to rudeness. We will no longer be people who demand our own way. We will no longer be people who are easily provoked. We will no longer be people who who keep records of wrong so that we we can pay back. We will be people who have been set free to love. Our love will be complete. Our love will be what it is supposed to be. Because that is where the Holy Spirit is taking us. He says, listen, he says, the gifts are good, but they're for an age of incompleteness. They are not ends in themselves. They are means to the end of being the people we were created to be, and therefore, don't lose sight. Don't so focus on the gifts that you lose sight of what the gifts are for. They're for building up the church towards maturity in Christ. But Paul doesn't stop at contrasting love with the gifts. Notice at the very end of of this section, he he actually provides us with a a second contrast. Because what does he say at the very end? The, the, The second contrast is not only between love and gifts, but the second contrast, the contrast is between love and what has been called the Christian virtues. Love is not only greater than gifts, it's even greater than faith and hope. Notice what Paul says. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now again, like anything that Paul writes, there's debate. There's there's debate about what exactly Paul means when he says, so now. Some people want to argue that it is merely a, a logical transition. He says, you know, now logically we know that these three Abide, But I think given what Paul has been saying and the contrast that he has been drawing between the, the present age of incompleteness and the coming age of perfection, it seems pretty clear that he says now, in this present age, in this age of incompleteness, there are three virtues. And those virtues are faith, hope, and love. These three abide now. But the greatest of even these is love. Even faith and hope are servants of love. Even faith and hope 
are means to the end of love. Paul doesn't spell this out, but the very fact that he he doesn't explain to us why love is greater suggests that the, the, the paradigm that he's already set before us applies here as well. Why is love greater? Why is is love greater than faith and hope? Well, again, because of the temporary nature of faith and hope. Just as the gifts are going to pass away because they are meant to get us there, so too is now an age of faith and hope, but then will be an age of love. Now, there's some objection to that. Well, won't we continue to believe the Word of God in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, of course we will. Of course we will continue to believe God. But when Paul speaks about faith, think about the contrast that he so often draws between walking by faith here and walking by sight there. It's a contrast he's actually brought up in this contrast where he says, then we will see face to face. Now we have to walk by faith. Now we have to to walk by faith. He's not suggesting that we will no longer believe God when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. Of course not. Any more than he's suggesting that we won't have knowledge in the new heavens and the new earth. But rather, faith as, as the walking by faith, as the not yet sight, that will pass away because then we will see. We will see. We will be able to walk by sight. And the same thing can be said about hope. Think about what Paul says about hope in, in Romans chapter 8. He says, now hope that is seen is not hope. That's what Paul says. Hope that is seen is not hope. So will we still hope for the glory of God and will we still delight in the good things? Of course. But hope in this sense is for the age of not seeing. In fact, Paul says, he says, who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so Paul himself defines hope as as that which is appropriate to the age of not having, as that which is appropriate to the age of not seeing. He says, we hope for it because we don't yet have it. And so again, it makes sense that that when what we hope for comes, we will no longer hope for it, but rather we will simply delight in it. And so even the virtues of of faith and of of hope are, are for getting us to where God is taking us. There's a goal to this salvation. And the goal is that we might be made people of love. That's where the Holy Spirit is taking us. You know, in our Reformed circles, we, we make a, a big deal about the fact that we are saved by grace apart from works, and rightly so. Because if you lose that, you lose the gospel. We are saved by what Christ has done, not by what we have done, not what my hands have done. Nothing can I bring. I cannot purchase this salvation. It has been purchased for me with the precious blood of of Jesus Christ. I have been saved by grace apart from works. That is the very foundation of our hope. If our hope rests in what we have done, then we have no gospel at all. And so we are right to emphasize That we have been saved by grace apart from works. But I can always hear my dad saying, but when you quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you better quote verse 10, (laughs) 2. Because that's where he's taking us. Yes, we have been saved by grace apart from work, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. He saved us that he might Make us new creatures, that he might renew us in the image of Christ. 
that He might again set us free to be people who love and who love well. To the praise of His own glory and the good of His kingdom. Love is the goal. And that is why love is what never ends. Those tools, those, those virtues, those things which get us there, they are for this age of incompleteness. But they are taking us somewhere. And so the goal is love. And we begin to see this. When we begin to see that love is the goal, when we begin to see that love is what He's taking us towards, I think it has at least three implications that, that we need to hold on to. And the first is simply this. We ought not to be surprised that this is an age of imperfection. We ought not to be surprised that this is an age of being incomplete. We ought not to be surprised by the incompleteness that we see in ourselves, and we ought not to be surprised by the incompleteness that we see in others. It doesn't mean that we ought to be satisfied with it. It doesn't mean that we ought to be content with it and, and suggest that it doesn't matter. But we ought not to be surprised. It is so easy for us sometimes to, to look at where we are and then to look at the, the ideal that we are being taken towards and say, I'm so far. Maybe God's not even at work. You ever been there? You ever been there? You, you see where you are in this life and you wonder, well, is God doing anything at all? And it's so easy for us to be discouraged. And we, we, have, to, we have to remember this is an age of incompleteness. God is not yet finished. He doesn't work at the pace we would like Him to work at. He, he, he doesn't do things the way that we would like Him to do. He seems terribly slow in our estimation. But He is at work. And He is taking us somewhere. And He will not fail to bring to completion the good work that He has begun. And so we have to rest in Him even as we strive towards the goal that He has set before us. We don't let go and let God, but we do trust God. We do trust that He is at work even as we seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So if you are here this morning and you are incomplete, look around. You're surrounded by incomplete people. And we together have been given the task of building one another up in love towards love. We will never finish that job in this life. It will, it will carry us uh, to the end of our days and will carry us until Christ returns again to bring it to completion Himself. But He is at work. And because He is at work, we can be at work as well. And the second thing that we see here is that because this is an age of incompleteness, this is an age when the gifts of the Spirit are necessary. The gifts of the Spirit are necessary. We need them. We need the people around us to be empowered by the Spirit. We need to be empowered by the Spirit so that this work of building one another up can carry on. Now we can have a discussion about if some of these gifts have ceased. I actually believe that. I, I believe that the foundational gifts were for that first generation, that they are no longer active in the church. But to jump from there to the fact that there are no spiritual gifts active is to shoot ourselves in the foot, if not worse. Because we can't do this work of building one another up in our own strength any more than we could save ourselves in our own strength. We need the Spirit to be at work. We need spiritual gifts. It's what Paul's going to say in chapter 14. He says, because love is the goal, because that's what we're working towards, be eager 
for the spiritual gifts, especially the gifts that do the most good for the people of God. And so we are a people today who are humbly reliant, desperately reliant upon the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit that we can do the work that we have been called to do. But even as we remember that, and even as we call out to the Holy Spirit to to be gifting us, to be empowering us, to be enabling us to do what we've been called to do, let us always remember Paul's main point here. And that is that the goal is always love. The goal is always that we would be built up into people of love. Everything else, from from the gifts even to faith and hope, everything else is scaffolding. The goal is that we would be people of love, that we would love even as we have been loved, that we would be conformed to the image of the love of Christ. And so this year, as you look ahead to 2017, which follows so closely on the heels of Christmas, let Christmas and let the purpose of Christ's coming inform your New Year's resolutions. What is it that you want in 2017? Well, whatever it is, remember this is God's goal. And may whatever goals you set for yourself serve this end, that we would become people of love, that we would become people who are marked by love. And so that as Jesus said, people would look at us and they would know we are his disciples because of the way that we love. The good news of Christmas is, is that when you make that resolution, you can make it with confidence because Jesus came, that we might have the Holy Spirit And that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we might become what we have been called to be. Because that is the good news of Christmas. That's why we call this gospel. That's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Believe it with me. Father God, we do pray in Jesus' name that you would do the work that you have promised to do. That you would carry on the work that you have begun. And Father, we ask with eager longing that You would bring it to completion, Father, that we would be people made perfect in the glorified and enjoying of You for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.